This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, last night, three provincial party leaders took place in a debate on City TV. Uh, it, uh, I thought, was very uh, disorganized and, um, and, and almost dysfunctional. I mean, at times I had a hard time comprehending what was being said because too many people were talking at once. And the big faux pas in broadcasting or media of any sort is if you have more than one person talking at once, nobody can hear. Uh, here's a little bit of what was going on last night. There's gas tax money that already is, exactly is provided. What happens, though, okay. Kathleen? And you know I, this, right? You know what? Places like New York. <laughs> can I just, can like I just finish the sentence That's I just exactly started? What happens. Which is that there is gas tax money that already goes to 99 municipalities around the province. All right. So then, when you got Doug Ford coming in, which wasn't uh, a lot, uh, then it, it just it, it it became uh, hard to comprehend. It seemed that they were jumping all over the place with issues, and uh, it didn't really seem to have any sort of consistency. Uh, which I thought, uh, as a result, um, you know, we could have learned more from all three of them. Uh, that being said, let's bring in Barry Kay, political science professor, Wilfrid Laurier University. He is with us now. Barry, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Good afternoon, Scott. So your thoughts, Barry, on the structure, on the actual debate itself? Oh, I agree with you uh, entirely. Um, look, there's, there's kind of a myth because of the attention that we tend to give debates as sort of focal points within election campaigns. It's actually quite unusual. It's not unprecedented, but it's quite unusual for debates to make a pivotal difference within a campaign. We frequently hearken back over 30 years to the 1984 debate between um, Turner and Mulroney, which really was pivotal because um, uh, John Turner did not know how to handle a certain question that he should have just fluffed off and not answered at all. Um, and we sort of look at that as an example where there really was a pivotal moment in a uh, a debate that, that really changed the course of the campaign. Most debates, certainly in Canada, don't tend to have that effect. Um, and the, as you already suggested, having three people there rather than two, it would have been even worse with four if the Greens or other people had been in. But even with three people, it, it, it can get very disorganized. The structure of the debate was unusual. I, I think it's the first time I've seen a debate where the, the, the three leaders actually were just standing there on their own without having a, um, a podium or pedestal or something. And I mean, right there, Barry, I felt awkward for all of them because that's incredibly difficult to do. Just stand there without like, at least have them seated if you're not going to have them behind a podium or some sort of... It was a very awkward scenario for all of them, don't you find? Yeah, um, I'm not sure the city people... I, I think they, they wanted to sort of outreach and sort of make it a... Um, as folksy as possible, and yeah. they wanted to have, uh, you know, the audience involved with questions, and, and that part of the, that can work in terms of creating an issue. But um, as as a spectacle, I don't think it worked at all. The fact that there were no really clear winners or losers um, is not unusual. That's the way it tends to be. One of the interesting things about the debate, and we'll get a better sense of this perhaps a little later on in the campaign. But my hunch is that because the conservatives have such a big lead in polls at the moment going into this, and that the, it's really their election to lose rather than anybody else's to win, I think they want to have uh, Doug Ford is in as controlled situations as possible. I think the circumstances of this particular debate, city television, not a network operation, um, at the 6 o'clock hour, which is not a time a lot of people are watching television anyway, talking about Toronto issues, um, now, the Toronto issues are something that Doug Ford is, should be more comfortable with and more um, familiar with than perhaps any other debate. My hunch is that Ford went into this debate knowing that relatively few people would be watching and suggesting that, there, that his comfort zone would be easier. Um, there may be other debates in the future, but the likelihood that we're going to see um, a, a, a general debate where all the networks sort of plug into it, as we frequently see in federal elections, I think that's unlikely. 
I think uh, I think there is one cons- there is one consortium debate where all the large networks are involved in them. Is there not? There is um, I I wasn't aware of that, but you uh, you may be right. But I think this particular debate was just a trial run for Ford, which he thought was low risk because of the fact that there wouldn't be a great audience anyway, and that um, it was an area that he was less unfamiliar with, perhaps than other province-wide issues. Do you think the public is more interested in these debates this time than other elections? I haven't seen evidence of that yet. I mean, like, the fact is, the election, formally, I guess, doesn't even really begin until tomorrow, mm. where the, the writs are actually dropped. Um, I, I can't say with, with any certainty about that, only that public opinion hasn't moved a tick in the last two months. The numbers that, were, that came out after the Conservative Leadership Convention are virtually identical with where they were a month ago and where they are at the moment. That may change, and people may start paying more attention to come. But at the moment, I don't think most Ontarians are all that plugged into this. Certainly, they're not changing their opinions about anything that's happened over the last two months. So tell uh, us what you thought of each individual candidate's performance. We'll start with the Premier. Well, the Premier is as knowledgeable as any on the issues, Mm -hmm. um, but clearly she has a real hill to climb, and I'm not sure that she can surmount it. I don't think anything the Liberals do during this campaign can lead them to win the election. There's an old adage that I may have used in the past on your sh- on your program that elect uh, that uh, governments are defeated, not elected. And what that really means is that it's about the incumbent government more than the opposition. Ontarians seem to be ready for change. Uh, the fact is, the Liberals have been there for 15 years. Wynne hasn't been there all that time, but there have been certainly scandals. She's, she actually has been, I guess, in government all that time. Mm. She hasn't been uh, premier all that time. Uh, and that, in fact, I just think that I'm not suggesting the Conservatives couldn't blow it. I think they could, especially with a, a less experienced politician like Ford. But I don't think that for all the haranguing that uh, Wynne can sort of um, in, inject into the Conservative campaign, I don't think she has enough credibility with enough Ontarians for that part of it to matter. Now, that's not to say that the Conservatives can't blow it, and that sort of becomes the next issue. I, I, I think, um, on, in terms of uh, familiarity with the issues, I think that uh, Wynne was as good as any. Uh, Ford, on the other hand, um, he, he just does not have the same kind of experience. No. He looks much more wooden, mm-hmm. um, sort of resorting to sort of pat phrases that aren't particularly relevant frequently to the questions that were being asked. Even his posture, he kind of looks a little bit like a, a tin soldier, the way he mm-hmm. holds his arms out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, but all, all that said, I'm not sure that all that many votes were changed anyway, partly because not a lot of people were watching, and partly because the people that are interested at all, and, and that tend to watch debates, uh, you frequently, it's the partisans that are already committed to one party or another. Um, the one, the one person that might have been helped a little bit. I was noted that there was a survey that they did. It, it was not scientific. It was just sort of phone, phoning in on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, so one shouldn't read too much into it. But I was surprised that in fact, um, uh, Horvath actually won, uh, got more support than anybody else. Uh, Ford wasn't far behind, and Wind trailed badly. Um, it may be that Horvath, and I, I don't want to suggest that there were big winners or losers out of this debate, I don't think there were, but that Horvath, by basically, because Wynn and Ford were going at each other most of the time, and um, although I'm not sure you should use the phrase, but Horvath had that there-they-go-again look, um, and frequently yeah. was sort of, uh, aside from it, it may have helped her a little bit. What, do, what does the NDP have to do to convince voters that they are more fiscally responsible than the liberals. I I remember asking Andrea Horvath, you know, when we've got a a liberal party that's veered so far to the left, what makes their party stand out 
from the liberals, and, and, and she said, obviously, they're going to do it right. That being said, uh, a lot of uh, what people are upset with with the Wynn government is the fiscal mismanagement and irresponsibility. What does... Uh, the ND, what do the NDP have to do to convince Ontarians they can deliver a, a wind-type uh, program but can fiscally be more responsible? Well, we'll see. Uh, again, trying to paint themselves too far to the right doesn't necessarily work. The no. NDP had that problem in the federal election. So that's quite a dilemma, Barry. What do you do in this case? Um, I, think, I don't think fiscal responsibility is going to be their, the winning ticket. And uh, frankly, yeah. the, the NDP usually wins when the other parties are in such bad shape that everybody hates them both. And right. only in those unusual circumstances, as in 1990 with Ray, does that occur. Uh, I think the, the, the prospect of the NDP actually winning, uh, informing the government, is pretty remote. That's not to say they can't do a little bit better. I think, frankly, just we do know that Horvath is the most popular per- figure personally. Mm-hmm. And that if she can basically keep smiling and saying the right things, I don't think she can credibly portray herself as far to the right. I don't think that matters. I think people that are going to w- go with the NDP are, gonna, are still going to be more or less left of center, but they figure that the liberals have had their shot at it. It's, it's time for a change. The time for a change message, which I think is real, does not necessarily resound only in the favor of the conservatives. Mm-hmm. It could help the NDP in certain circumstances, in certain ridings. Hamilton, of course, is a very much a stronghold for the NDP, most of not Hamilton West, but the, much of the rest of the city. Um, and I think that's what the NDP has to hope, that the liberals and conservatives will beat up on each other enough, and that people that, get, that don't like Ford, and there's reasons for that too, that in fact will look at the NDP and, and Horvath as a credible alternative to, to the to win, that would probably be the kind of how how that actually gets massaged into a uh, into a strategy. I'm not totally certain about, but I think that's the approach. Keep smiling. Don't don't sort of lower yourself into the kind of debate we right. saw between Win and, and uh, Ford. That being said, other than the numbers we saw last night on the debate, which of course, as you mentioned, were unscientific, the, the NDP just doesn't don't don't seem to be resonating in the polls. Why aren't people looking at this as a more viable alternative? At this stage, well, they're, they're, they haven't fallen particularly. They're, they're where they were last time, which yeah. actually was kind of where they were the time before that, if yeah. I remember. This will be uh, uh, Andrea's third uh, third shot at it. Uh, the NDP has a certain base. Uh, in many cases, I think one of the things they perhaps could emphasize, particularly in southwestern Ontario, um, is that they they are the. Um, uh, it's a strategic vote. If you're uh, really, if it looks like Ford is going to win, and I, I think that's the safe prediction at the moment, that indeed the NDP may be the credible alternative in a number of constituencies. The problem for the NDP, and I think it's true in a bunch of Hamilton, but certainly in northern Ontario and Windsor and a number of the other ridings around uh, the area, that in most cases where the NDP is competitive and has at least a chance of winning, they're up against the Liberals themselves. Um, and indeed, most of the in most of the writings that they won last time, it was the Liberals, not the Conservatives, that actually actually placed second. So they have to, um, without being too sharp-edged about it, because I think um, nice is the, the the strategy for Andrea to follow, and she certainly did it last night to, to to just try to present herself as positive and not get too into mudslinging with with the others. Uh, but that in fact she's got to present herself in the, in that kind of positive way and hope that in fact people are so. Um, uh, the, the liberals are so demonized by the conservatives, and many Ontarians already feel that way, that mm-hmm. indeed the people that do, are not ready for Doug Ford and are not that to the right of center will be prepared to give the NDP a chance. Uh, they, may, they may win a, a few more seats than they won last time. I can think of several in the Toronto area that are really liberal NDP fights. So ridings like um, the Beaches riding is one, Davenport's another, the uh, Spadina-Fort uh, York riding is yet another. Those, are, those aren't seats the Conservatives are probably even come first or second. They're third. 
the NDP does have a chance in those seats. There are a few other seats around the province. Um, actually, where I live in Waterloo, interestingly, is an NDP conservative fight. Uh, that's true in Oshawa. I think it's true in the Niagara Falls and the Niagara Center area. There are a few ridings where it's going to be conservative NDP. But in most of the ridings where the NDP holds it now or has been very competitive in the past, the Liberals are the alternative. Any real surprises last night, Barry? I mean, as I, I think what we were talking about earlier on in the week, what, the, what it's going to look like the day after, no real surprises here. Oh, not, not in terms of performance especially. I don't think people had great expectations of Ford. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought he came off as the least comfortable, the least smooth. Yeah. Perhaps this was a good trial run for him because there will be some other debates. I think the Conservatives are going to be very wary, though, in terms of putting them on, on display. They, look, they have a 16, I think 15, 16 point lead, depending on how you average, average the polls. Um, I, I can't remember in, in decades where any party went into a, a, an election campaign with that kind of lead. Uh, we've seen leads in the, the high single digits, but, um, but not, not at this level. That's why it's very difficult to think that the Conservatives, even if they lose some support, and I suspect they will, that's t- generally these things tighten up over an election campaign. But to think that the, uh, end, that the uh, Conservatives can come down 16 points or even to, to the 6 or 7, because they would probably need a, a province-wide lead of at least 6 or 7 points to have a shot at a majority. Uh, but to think that they'll, come, they'll diminish from a 16-point lead down to that, really is a stretch unless Ford does something really stupid. And for that reason, I think he's going to be as controlled and managed as possible. He's already made at least one, one mistake, it seems, with regard to the, the green space suggestion. Right. Um, and at least he listens to people, um, but, uh, you know, to his advisors. And hopefully, that, from his point of view, that won't happen again. But uh, that I, I, if I were betting on this, I, I don't think uh, Ford looked all that strong last night. But with the kind of lead they're going in with, unless he makes real mistakes, I suspect they'll still be ahead at the end of the day. Obviously, the other two much more polished politicians, uh, as you mentioned, Ford did look awkward last night. Does that work in his favor? I don't see that it works. I mean, again, it's not just true of last night. Generally, with debates, most people tend to have their views reinforced, unless a real dumb mistake is made. Yeah. Uh, Ford's style was not as smooth, but I don't know that he said anything that was particularly off-putting and, and offensive. He didn't answer questions, mm-hmm. uh, but that happens frequently in debates anyway. He never did come to grips with how he was going to, in fact, cut the budget. He, and that, that's a theme that will recur. The Liberals and the NDP, I'm sure, will be challenging uh, Ford on that throughout the campaign. Uh, you know, he's talked about the fact there's going to be tax cuts, but he has uh, given no explanation at all of where that's coming from. And the Liberals and the conserv- and the NDP will try to fill in the blanks and suggest that people should be afraid of their jobs, people should be afraid of their health care, people should be afraid of social services and transportation. Um, at some point, he may feel pushed to actually have an answer to that. He didn't last night, but for people that went into it thinking that um, it was time for a conservative change from the Liberals, I'm not sure that anything that happened last night is going to alter that. Barry Kay has been with us, political science professor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. So uh, what did happen? How did uh, we get to where we were yesterday? Of course, there was lots of um, uh, pre-promotion about the alert ready that was coming out. Uh, at 5 to 2 yesterday, I remember receiving an actual text 
saying that this was going to happen, although I, I didn't, as I mentioned, uh, get any notification uh, whatsoever. Let's bring in Scott Davis. He is an emergency management professional with 15 years practical and teaching experience, participated in the wireless public alerting working group, getting ready for the implementation of the alert ready and yesterday's test. And Scott is with us now. Scott, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Thank you for the opportunity, Scott. So what was your involvement in all of this? Uh, How did you help out here? So back, I guess it was about a year ago, there was a couple of working groups that were struck uh, to work with the CRTC. And the group I was on was, I'm going to call it the implementation group. So the one that worked on making the recommendations to the CRTC, how to get the public ready for this. And... uh, make them aware of the test. And then there was another group, which was the technical group, and they were the ones that actually uh, worked with, again, CRTC and the service providers to be able to uh, figure out how to get uh, the system to work. Uh, How complicated was this? Because we think, well, with technology today, they can do everything. We're all hooked up. How can we not, why can we not just push one intercom switch and talk to everybody all at once? How, How challenging was this? Well, that was one of the benefits of working on the uh, working group. I really learned a lot about how difficult it is. And uh, you've also got to remember there's a number of providers, uh, Rogers, Bell, Telus, Fido, Kudo, and and the list goes on. And, of course, uh, little increases of each of those providers able to get uh, the notification out and how that system struck. And I don't claim to understand all of the technicalities, and that's why I stayed away from that committee and worked on the implementation, but it is uh, um, quite involved. So is there any parts of the world that have this figured out that's doing it right? I'm, I'm going to chuckle because I think everyone has some difficulties Um, So I can't claim that anybody's got it perfect. But, you know, when I look at yesterday and I had a number of friends and family members knowing that I'm in the emergency management uh, industry say, oh, what a failure that was. But I disagree. Uh, To fail is to learn. To learn is to succeed is is my buzz line that I've taught my students and I work in emergency management with. So we know that uh, CRTC is aware of the... uh, of the failures uh, in Quebec, my understanding in yesterday's test, there was a simply a space incorrectly included in the coding that prevented the system from sending out uh, the Quebec text test message. Now in Ontario, uh, my understanding is uh, CRTC and the uh, alert ready partners are working together to identify the cause. I haven't heard exactly what it is yet. Uh, we're asking everybody, to, of course, to have some patience as we work through and determine which providers were successful, which ones weren't, and uh, if all areas. So, for example, if it was uh, Bell, uh, were all the subscribers to Bell across the province uh, either reached or not reached or Rogers or any of the others? Um, and uh, part of that failure, of course, is to enlighten us um, on what happened. Uh, what about, uh, as you said, uh, you, you, you deem this a success because you, you're going across the country and you've got some issues in Ontario and Quebec that, that, that still leaves a lot of the country. How did this fare in other provinces? Well, uh, Quebec and Ontario was uh, today, or sorry, yesterday, and then um, 
my understanding, and I don't have my notes in front of me, but there's uh, further tests which will include uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and BC, and that's later this week. Uh, this week is Emergency Preparedness Week mm-hmm. across uh, Canada, and so that's why the working group specifically picked this week to uh, make the test and use the educational awareness uh, to people across Canada. So hopefully we can figure out what the errors were and get those corrected so that uh, the other provinces um, don't have the same problem. Yeah, I should cur- I should clarify that now. Wednesday, Yukon, Northwest Territories, Alberta, BC, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick uh, all have their tests at roughly the same time. Uh, except for New Brunswick, they're at 6.55. So I guess we'll know more by Wednesday uh, if there's similar situations across the country. Correct. And I know I got uh, my um, my text and alert, and my wife didn't. So um, to the point of, you know, at least one in the family got it. Uh, however, um, there's many others that didn't. So does it seem to be... Um, does it seem to be a provider issue for, like, for example, if, you know, on one network, for example, certain Rogers people or all Rogers people didn't get it or TELUS did, or, or is, it, is it inconsistent throughout all of the providers? I think that uh, um, the short answer on that is we don't know. Yeah. Uh, the long answer is uh, there's, I know there's different uh, polling that's up now. I know uh, there's uh, people... Um, um, sending messages to CRTC directly uh, to let them know they did or didn't get it. And uh, through that, uh, using analytics and, and proper research, we mm. can determine you know, where geographically and which providers did or didn't. Uh, I was just talking to my producer. She got it. I didn't. We have the same provider, so I don't know if that has any bearing on anything, obviously. Um, so uh, obviously more testing has to be done. What happens now? What what well, do what do the people involved with this do with what happened today? How, how do they and and can they correct it before it goes out on Wednesday for the rest of the country? Um, to the rest of the country on Wednesday, that might be difficult, um, and I can't you know I can't suggest what that error is other than we know in Quebec it was you know literally a space incorrectly included in the coding, but uh, for Ontario, not sure. Uh, what I do know is there's. Uh, a lot of people going to be working hard on this to figure out what the issue was. Uh, my understanding is uh, uh, there was to be another test approximately from a year from now, but I would suggest that that would be moved up uh, due to the results of this test. And um, I think what you'll see is the working groups come back together, the providers and uh, um, the CRTC um, working to come up with those um, spots. And actually, if um, your listeners go to alertready.ca, um, there is an area that lists all the different responsibilities. So what the government users, so CRTC, what the NAD system, the distributors for your TV, radio, cable, what they're supposed to, and what the public, so what everybody's responsibilities. And I think all down that, that chain, uh, we'll all kind of look in the mirror and go, okay, what what worked, what didn't, and how do we fix it? And this wasn't just phones where there were issues. Um, it, apparently there was some issues as well with some other media, traditional media, that didn't get the uh, alert as well. So I guess there was glitches uh, with more than just the cell phone portion of this. That's my understanding, correct. So um, 
where does the U.S. stand on this? What kind of system do they have? My understanding is that uh, through Homeland Security and uh, each state, and I believe it's each state is responsible, and there is a national system that ties into each state. But when you look at, for example, um, each municipality in the states may or may not have the capacity to do it themselves. And I know there's an initiative in Canada where some municipalities were looking at how to reach out to uh, residents. So I'm going to use, for example, down near Sarnia, Petrochemical Valley, um, there was a real initiative through uh, the petrochemical industry working with the municipalities to enhance notification to residents if there was a a disaster. Um, But that's not the norm across uh, the province, and I I wouldn't suggest across Canada. Um, I think in the States, though, um, and this is only my opinion, uh, they're a little further ahead on involvement of uh, the government. Uh, Should this be a federal thing or a provincial thing? Well, each each province has their own emergency management um, ministry. Um, I think that there's kind of a shared responsibility. I think the education from the province, but I think because the CRTC is a federal, and when you look at our providers really are, you know, C to C, um, I think it's important that uh, there's uh, federal governance uh, through the CRTC to bring this all together. Who's paying for all of this? Uh, as far as I know, it's a combination of the uh, service providers, so your TV, radio, cable, satellite providers, and uh, um, that's primarily where I believe all the funding is coming from. So is this system as we know it working now, Scott? I mean, is, is, is it up and running right now? Like, in other words, if there was... A, a disaster or something that we needed to be notified of, they'd launch this thing tomorrow, even with it as it is? Because even that's, I guess, better than nothing. That that would be my uh, assumption as well. I think that it's, it's better to get, um, knowing that you've got some gaps, but it's better than nothing at all. And we do know that there's portions um, of... Um, alerting notification that do work because, for example, the Amber Alert system um, is very close to this type of notification. So what is the difference here? That, that's a valid point. We have the Amber Alert Amber Alert system. What's the difference between that and Alert Ready? And will one eventually encompass the other? That, I'm, I, we're getting into technicalities that I'm not 100% sure, but my understanding is they're supposed to be very similar and in the event of a regional or geographical area, that that alert would go out, and that would include uh, things like weather and and uh, amber alerts and and various alert types, uh, you know, natural or uh, if there was a wildfire, hazardous materials, um, civil unrest, that type of thing. So, is this just an extension of the amber alert program? And I don't mean to say just, but is that basically what it is? I think that's where the uh, um, initiative kind of came from. There were successes. And, of course, this is my opinion only. The, you know, we've seen where there's been success in Ontario, where an Amber Alert goes out, and uh, whether that's on the radio or on our phones, and all of a sudden everybody's looking out on 
you know, 401 or wherever that area is. And we've proven that, um, you know, spotters have seen that vehicle that's been broadcast and the system works. And this is where Alert Ready uh, kind of comes in, that it's the same type of concept. Uh, we know that people, um, you know, I look at myself, uh, the number of times that I'm on my TV is getting rarer and rarer. And uh, for years, the, that was kind of the way you'd have that tone and some, you know, some sort of message come across the bottom of your TV, uh, usually about weather. But we know more and more people are mobile, um, almost, you know, everybody has a phone in their pocket or is near someone that has a phone. And that seems to be the go-to way of getting in touch with people now. So I think it's a great initiative to be able to reach out to uh, Canadians all over. Uh, and more tests on the way? Yes. Uh, my understanding was that uh, there was to be another test approximately a year from now. Um, however, I would suggest that what you're going to see based on yesterday is the CRTC, the uh, service providers, and uh, likely the working groups will come back together uh, with that um, uh, analytics uh, that have shown us where it's worked, where it hasn't identify the gap and uh, do those changes. And in your view, this test was a success. Why? Um, I go back to um, over the years, the number of uh, emergency exercises, drills that I've participated in, and I'm going to suggest over 500. And I keep the mantra to fail is to learn, to learn is to succeed. So, you know, I can think of fire drills where something as simple as somebody pulled the fire alarm to get the drill started and the fire alarm didn't work well that doesn't Hmm. mean that it was a failure it means we now have identified um, a device that wasn't working we can fix it and carry on for the next time and i'm going to suggest that this is the same we know there's gaps identify what was the cause and carry on which is why you have a test in the first place exactly Uh, These things aren't being used all the time, therefore uh, have to be periodically test. We remember that from the good old days. Will we see something like this, like a probably annual test of of this, once it is up and running and consistent? Yes, I would suggest at minimum uh, yearly, and I I think what you'll also see is through the providers in the CRTC and Alert Ready, a tracking where there's actual events that show that it does work, doesn't work, and what gaps, and uh, they'll get rolled into the annual test. Somebody uh, sent me a note and said, will we eventually get video on this? That, um, I I can't say that uh, I see that, um, and I'm going to suggest... So, for example, I don't know, if there's a tornado coming, you get to see a picture of the tornado coming? I'm not sure what advantage that would have, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, as these things become more technologically advanced, I'm guessing they'll be able to do more. A- any chatter of that? No, I haven't heard <laughs> As if, you know, people need to see an actual shot of a tornado coming before they realize, oh, maybe I should do something. No, because I think the... Uh 
rather than running and, and uh, taking cover as they should, they'd probably be standing there on the sidewalk looking at their phone of the tornado bearing That's right. down. That's it. Yeah, taking a selfie of the tornado <laughs> and themselves instead of running for cover. Exactly. All right. Uh, Scott Davis has been with us, emergency management professional, 15 years practical and teaching experience, participated in the wireless public alerting working group, getting ready for the implementation of Alert Ready. Uh, Scott, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. As uh, you may or may not be aware, uh, Kilauea, uh, the Kilauea volcano is erupting in Hawaii. And, uh, you know, at, at first it was quite the magnificent thing to see. Now, of course, it's, it's, it's well, it's wreaking havoc and forcing many to flee their homes. To talk more about all of this, Adam Sewell is with us, Associate Science in the Geology and Geophysics Department and Chief Scientist of the Deep Submerge of the Woods Hole. Oh, my goodness, my goodness, my goodness. All in Massachusetts. I'm sorry, uh, Oceanof- uh, Ocean- Oceanogra- Oceanographic Institute in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Adam, I'm so sorry I butchered that. Adam, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Oh, it's my pleasure, and it's kind of a mouthful for the for the institution and the the title. <laughs> uh, before we get started, we're going to play you a couple of clips of residents uh, in the area. I have not been in since last Thursday, so I have no idea. Uh, my home is right in the line of the major breakouts, so <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Yesterday, when we went. Uh, you know, we were looking at the volcano and you could hear it. It's like yeah, a freight train and a huge wave coming at you, you know. It was very scary. All right, uh, Adam, when this first started, uh, did we anticipate the danger uh, or, or just a, another typical eruption which, which happens in this part of the world? Is this turning out to be more severe than initially thought? Um, you know, the the houses around the area where the eruption occurred uh, were kind of known to be at risk. They're sitting right on the rift zone where there are potential for eruptions. And I think um, there's a plumbing system that goes through the whole volcano. So up at the summit of the volcano, they started to recognize that things were changing. And uh, there was a chance that there would be an eruption uh, in this area. Um, it, it unfortunately happened right in the middle of this subdivision, um, but it's it's not wholly unexpected given where it, where it sits. So, um, and, and you know, I don't, certainly don't pretend to be an expert on this sort of thing, but when you think of volcano, you think of one hole, one crater per se, and something coming out of it. This seems to be a very different beast. Yeah. So the the volcanoes uh, have a kind of central body of magma and the, there's a caldera that sits above it but in Hawaiian volcanoes there are rift zones that extend out uh, to the side in the case of Kilauea to the southwest and to the east and um, you know this community and, and others in Hawaii are built on you know kilometers and kilometers of, of lava flows uh, it, this area you know when they were developing it hadn't had an eruption in in a century, so it was it was looked at as somewhat of a safe place. But uh, you know, these sites are always going to be where where eruptions initiate. Uh, how difficult is it when you have a scenario like this, where it seems that you're? Is it predictable where where uh, lava will start to escape from? Well, when you look at the at the entire volcano, yes, there are areas where you can predict lava is going to come out. And, you know, the, the rift zone is 
50 kilometers long. So predicting where exactly along the rift zone it will come out is, is difficult. Over the past 30 years, it's been very predictable. It's been at the summit and at an event called Pu'u'o'o that's about 20 kilometers down the rift zone. This site is another 20 kilometers down the rift zone, so it, it was a surprise to people that it was in their backyard, but on the scale of the entire volcano, this is, this is where eruptions are expected to happen. Uh, the Hawaiian Civil Defense says 35 structures, including 26 homes, and 12 fissures have formed. Describe what 12 fissures are. Yeah, so the, the magma comes up to uh, the surface in kind of a planar dike, kind of a flat plane of, of magma, and when it hits the surface, it breaks open uh, in a kind of long line of cracks. And so that's what they're describing with fissures. And so the fissure system uh, for this eruption is, you know, a few kilometers long, and lava can come out anywhere along that, but it tends to focus to the center of that you know, a few kilometer long line, which is what's happened in this eruption. And uh, then the magma will localize and it will produce a lava flow that extends some distance from, from that part of the, the fissure. Is that why this lava flow seems to be slower than others is because there's so many exits? Um, you know, not, not exactly. It, it, it depends on how much magma is kind of behind and pushing up. Uh, and how steep of a path it has to go down. It is a, a fairly slow-moving uh, lava flow, which is uh, good in the sense that, that it gives people time to get out of the way and clear out their houses, but it can also be, I'm sure for the people who live there, extremely uh, frustrating to watch this bulldozer kind of coming towards their, hmm. their home. So does this seem to be slower of an eruption than others, or, or is it traditionally like this? Uh, you know, you get the, the whole range of, of velocities. Um, there's other eruptions that have moved at uh, tens of kilometers, uh, you know, per hour from from this volcano. Uh, this one is on, I would say, on the slow side. Um, it's It's moved, you know, 500 meters over the past day or so. So it's not um, a fast eruption, uh, and it's maybe a little slower than typical. So what are scientists learning from this? Oh, well, so, you know, the, the goal of the, the scientists there, and there's a, a volcano observatory run by the U.S. Geological Survey on this volcano, and their goal is to um, be as good as they can be at, at predicting when eruptions will occur and where they occur. So every time there's an eruption, especially one in an unusual location like this or one that's a new location, they can look at the record of earthquakes, the record of uh, gas coming out of the ground, and have a better sense of how to predict uh, where it's going to come out. And then when the lava flows are, are moving across the ground, they're also making observations to try and learn about what controls where the lava flow is going to go and how fast it's going to get there. So, there, you know, despite the, the tragedy associated with this event, there's a great deal of new information being gathered that's going to help for uh, uh, mitigating the effects of future events. And Kilauea has been, has been erupting continuously pretty much. It's smoldering all the time, is it not, or has been since the 80s? Yeah, that's right. So in, in, uh, the, for th more than 30 years, it's been erupting from the same location. Over the past five years or so, there's been much more activity at the summit. And, uh, you know, to give you a sense of how all the 
the kind of places where lava is coming out are connected, the summit has a lava lake that overflowed a, a week or 10 days ago, and then it's, it very quickly drained. And the site that's been erupting for 30 years, Pu'uo'o, then drained after that. And so you could tell that magma is moving around in the system. And mm. so they were not shocked when a new eruption formed further down the rift. Would that be as the crater's collapsing? Is that what that means? Yeah, it would mean that, that magma is being redirected to this new uh, eruption site and, uh, and being drained from these, these other sites of eruption. So there, it's probably reflecting something that's happening deeper in the system than right at the surface, but we're seeing the manifestation at the surface is that you're seeing these, these draining events at, at Lava Lake. So would scientists be relieved that this is happening in this form um, because it stops something bigger in the future? How, concerning are they? How concerned are they? No, I think this this is kind of the the regular mode of activity for um, for Kilauea. What's what would be concern is if you had large explosive eruptions, and this um, has a potential to to lead to things like that because as the lava level drains up at the summit, uh, it allows groundwater to get into the system, and of course, when you mix magma and water, you can have uh, explosive results. So the explosive eruptions are much more hazardous to life, whereas the uh, lava flows are, are certainly hazardous to people's property and, and other infrastructure. So how, how, is, how is Hawaii reacting to this? I mean, obviously, if your home's being burned, it, it's an issue, but is this, is this of concern to most there? Well, you know, there's, this is one of the uh, kind of riskier places to live. Is this like forest on. fires in California? Uh, yeah, so in a sense that there there are people who live in uh, kind of wilderness areas or as, as development encroaches on wilderness areas, they're putting themselves at a bit of risk for forest fires, as are the people who live in, in floodplains around rivers. And this is, is just another example of uh, a place where, where it's desirable to to live, uh, and but also you're, you have a little bit of risk in doing so. So how is this affecting life there? How is this affecting transportation, business, life on the island? Yeah, so I'm not on the ground there, so I couldn't say uh, for sure, but I can tell you that the eruption so far has not impacted any of the major roads uh, in the area. I think the effects are going to be uh, pretty local at this point to the subdivision that the eruption's happening in. Now, to the people whose homes are being affected, it's, it's devastating. But um, at this point, the, I think the impacts are, are uh, pretty localized. Uh, you mentioned this is now sort of uh, affecting a subdivision in an area where they you know, hadn't seen this sort of activity in a while. What happens to this area now, after, even after things calm down? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, in in the past, we've seen uh, kind of slow redevelopment of some of these areas, but my expectation is that that uh, many of the impacted uh, folks are going to to move away from the area. That this is a, a you know it's tough because there are people who who live and work in this area, but 
um, I think they're going to have to look for, they're probably not going to want to stay right in this subdivision. So, um, and I, this this may be a, a silly question, but if there has been an eruption in this area and it eventually settles down, does that mean it's likely there won't be one in the future, or more likely that the, will, there will be one in the future? You know, I wish I wish I had a, a an answer to that question. It it's uh, it's difficult to say. You know, we look at at these events on the on the time scale of you know, months and years, and really the patterns of the volcano probably span decades to hundreds to thousands of years. So it may be that deeper in the system, there's more magma coming up and we can we can move into an era of, uh, you know, more eruptions, or it may be that this is a blip on the radar screen. And you can really only understand that in... in uh, hindsight or with some longer-term observation. It seems uh, with this lava moving so slowly that people aren't really that concerned about it. That being said, what about the fumes and, and whatever's coming out of the ground? How dangerous is it around this area? Yeah, it can be very dangerous. The The primary uh, gas that's coming out that's dangerous to people is sulfur dioxide. And um, if you're in an area that's that's uh, heavily impacted uh, you can you can asphyxiate in addition that sulfur dioxide reacts to make uh, um, sulfuric acid which can be uh, unpleasant to be around as well so in the vicinity of the eruption and the cracks and, or fissures in the ground it's not a great place to be they've evacuated this entire subdivision even though uh, only a small part of it is is being impacted by lava at the moment so what does the future hold? What Do you just sit and ride this out and, and let Mother Nature take its course? Uh, what, what, what are scientists doing as they're monitoring this? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a pretty uh, incredible force, and it's not one that we have the capability to uh, stop or, or, or mitigate while it's happening. So really, uh, we're you know, in a mode now of trying to, to limit, uh, limit the the impact of it, but there's no way to, to stop an eruption and attempts in the past to divert lava flows from one direction to another direction have, have really failed. Either they've not worked or they've redirected it to some other, you know, person's house, and you don't want to do that either. So the, the, the actions on the ground are really to observe, try and learn from it, and try and keep people safe as this uh, eruption continues. As things start to rattle around, almost like an earthquake, uh, are you worried that this will spawn other eruptions? Uh, you know, that's, that's uh, always a, a possibility. At the moment, the, the magma has found a way uh, to the surface and is, is coming out of the ground. And, and I think while this eruption remains active, you wouldn't expect another eruption to happen. But uh, when this eruption stops, if there's continue, uh, a continued feed of magma from below, then it's going to you know, find a way to get out. So uh, as I said, you can't uh, predict based on, on what we've seen so far whether another eruption will occur, um, but you have to remain uh, vigilant and watch for the signs of that in case that is the case. What about long-term effects of this eruption? Um, for example, the gases, does that uh, all dissipate? What, what are the long-term effects here? 
Yeah, so the gases, uh, you know, will dissipate as the as the eruption slows down and stops. Um, you're going to have a kind of area that's been paved over by lava, and over the next uh, decades or several hundred years, that's going to return to the the kind of rainforest that dominates this area. So the the immediate impacts are going to be that the hazard's going to decrease significantly, and uh, then there's going to be a long-term impact where you've kind of uh, changed the, the local ecosystem, and, and it's going to take time for that to recover. What is the biggest challenge at this point? Oh, the biggest challenge, I think, is probably just related to manpower. You want to be watching this eruption 24 hours a day to make sure that things are continuing as you expect, or if there's changes, what, are, what, what effect are those going to have? And so you need, uh, you need a fair number of people to do that. And uh, the Volcano Observatory is staffed by, by a bunch of wonderful scientists, um, but you know, they also have to, to sleep. So I think hmm. that uh, you just need enough people to continue to watch it and monitor the situation for any, any changes. What about air travel, affecting air travel at all? I doubt the, the, I don't think this is going to affect air travel because it's not producing uh, any kind of ash that's going up into the the sky. Which Why be, would this uh, one not have ash? Well, it has to do with how quickly it's coming out of the ground and how much gas is in the right. in the magma. So this is a kind of volcano where you tend to get gentle, effusive eruptions, whereas other volcanoes. Um, in the Cascade Arcs, uh, Cascade Arc, for example, Mount St. Helens tend to produce explosive eruptions. And then there's stuff in between, as in Iceland, where you had water mixing with the magma that uh, led to explosivity. But I think that the expectation is this will continue to be a gentle eruption, not have any impact on air travel. How exciting is this for scientists, or is this just the same old, same old, and this is what we can expect from this type of area? Well, I, I hate to say it's exciting because I know that there mm -hmm. are people who are severely impacted, but um, it is a really wonderful opportunity to learn more about how this volcano works, especially since this is a location or, or you know, the location for this eruption moved after 30 years of activity in one spot. So understanding why that happened uh, and, and understanding why it came up where it did is, is a really great opportunity. Do you often get more questions than answers? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that... Like, does this create more questions than it does answers? Um, yeah, I think that's, that's the case, you know, for science in general. The more, mm -hmm. because these systems are so complex, uh, the more observations you get, sometimes it leads to more questions than answers. But I think that, uh, you know, the, every opportunity we get to observe an eruption like this is pushing us further down the road. So even if there's more questions, they're probably more sophisticated questions than we've been able to ask before. Adam Sewell has been with us, associate scientist in the geology and geophysics department and the chief scientist for Deep Submergent Woods Hole Institution in Massachusetts and with the American Geophysical Union. I got it right that time. Adam, thanks so much for the time and expertise. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.